Okay, how are you guys? Good. Oh, man, that was a little quiet. How are you guys? Okay, we just had an incredible, like, celebratory worship set here, and everybody's pumped up. Come on now. We're here. Let's do this. Right. Let's, we're here to worship God. Let's do that. My name's Carter, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. And uh, whether you're joining us online or whether you're here in person, I'm so thankful that you're with us today. And before we jump into the new series that we're starting today, as you just saw, Deep Dependent Worship... I just want to start by calling your attention to something that's going to be happening in the next couple of weeks. We're going to begin in December what we call our Multiply Offering. All right, and We do this every year as a church, and it's a great way for us to really push ourselves to that next level of missional giving in our lives. You know, so if you're not giving to the mission at all, you need to start. And if you're giving, 10, if you're giving but you're not giving 10% yet, you need to try to make 10% the floor of your giving, not the ceiling of your giving. And if you're already giving 10%, then you might need to give in a sacrificial way above and beyond this December. So we suggest giving double what you normally give in the month of December. That's what Tamara, my wife, and I are going to be doing together in, in the month of December for our Multiply offering. Uh, but we know some of you guys might even be able to give above and beyond that. And so you might need to be thinking bigger numbers. And the only reason is because God deserves that. The mission is worth that. And if you don't feel comfortable giving to our church, Redemption Church, because you got some baggage there or it makes you feel a little icky about that, then you need to make sure you're giving to some kind of mission-minded organization that is discipling people and sharing the gospel with people across the Roanoke Valley. And if you can't give it all to God's mission, then I want you to go back and listen to the He Gave series that we had last month because you have a heart problem. And you need to take that up between you and God because God is the one who commands us to give to his mission, not me not our church. And so if it feels icky to give here, don't give here. Give somewhere else for the sake of the mission. But if you can't give anywhere, then you've got a problem that you need to deal with in your own life. And so we'd encourage you to take December as a month to think about how you can do that and how you can grow in your faith and to give big to the mission. Don't miss the opportunity to do that here if you believe in our mission. Uh, we have a special commitment Sunday on December 10th and I want to make sure I put in front of you guys every week now until that happens so that you will remember to be here for that. It's a very important moment for our church. And our goal this year is $80,000. That's what we want to see God do through us for the sake of the mission in the coming year. Uh, so we'll see what that looks like and expect more details to come in the coming weeks as to where all that goes and all that kind of stuff. But I'm excited today to start our new series, Deep Dependent Worship. This is going to lead us into Christmas for the next five weeks. Can you believe it? It's here. It is here right? Thanksgiving's next week, but man, Christmas is on its way. And so we're going to be in Romans 12, 1 and 2 today. If you want to turn there, find that on your device. That's where we'll be studying in the Bible. And this is this focus that we've had all year, deep dependent worship. It's what we've been talking about all year long. And what a great season Christmas is to meditate for a few weeks on worship and what that means for us. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just around the corner and we're a week away from the music and the decorations and the Advent readings and all of that, at least in the Monday household, it's a week away. Okay, now, if you've already started to listen to Christmas music, I don't know how to help you. Something's wrong. Okay, I'm just telling you. It's a rule in my house that you cannot do any of that. Decorations don't come out until after Thanksgiving. Now, I don't believe it. This is wrong. It's wrong. There's, there's a sin issue in your heart. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, I'm <laughs> just kidding. Uh, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you, all right? In the 70-degree winter weather that we're having, let's go decorate for Christmas and all that. Listen to Christmas music. That's a it's excessive, all right? Don't do it. I'm just telling you. 
But in our house, you know, all that Christmas stuff is going to come out next week. And of course, deep dependent worship never has a timeline on it, right? Like for me, I mean, the rule is don't do it until after Thanksgiving. We have a month. It's a good solid little over. I'm giving you over a month to celebrate Christmas. Listen, deep dependent worship is everything. It's all the time. That's the, whole, that's the whole deal. Worship is actually everything. There's no season for worship, right? As a matter of fact, it should characterize everything that we do in our lives. Over the last year, I want to ask you, do you feel like you've grown deeper in your dependence on God and learned to worship Him alone? Do you feel like that for yourself as we've kind of had this as a theme over the year? And before you start to get down on yourself and think, no, I'm, not, I'm really not doing what I ought to be doing, listen, I just want to speak some words of encouragement to you. I think that many of you have just by my own observations. I believe that I have personally. I think that I'm learning to worship God deeply and what that means for my life, but I've seen many of you guys doing that. And for example, I'll just give you one example of how I have seen this. I'm really thankful to get complimentary feedback on the sermons that I preach every week. I love hearing that you think that a sermon I preach is the best you've ever heard me preach. I really am. I don't mind that at all. I appreciate that. But I've heard that every week for the last two months in a row from multiple people every week. Now, I'm not bragging at all, and I'm not exaggerating. That is the the literal fact. I've heard that every single week. Do you know why? It's not because I'm getting better. I don't think, I have not changed one thing in the way that I preach. I promise you, I haven't. It's because you're learning to worship God more deeply, and you're learning to depend on him alone. I really believe that's what's happening. I think it's you, not me, in a good way, right? It's you, it's not me, but that's a good thing, this, this case. Because I really think that our church is learning to depend on God more deeply and to worship him alone. We talked about this off and on. Worship is something that we all do, whether we are religious or not religious. People just worship. It's how we're made as humans. Worship is the intention of our heart. We're all bent toward giving our adoration and our love and our attention towards something in this life. And we can't turn that off. So the question becomes not, are we worshiping? But what are we worshiping? That's the question. Because another way to describe worship is worthship. What do you ascribe worth to in your life? What do you think is of ultimate worth for yourself? I mean, we do that with many things. We ascribe worth to a lot of things in our lives, which is understandable and right and good in many cases. My wife and my kids, my church, my job, my material possessions even, they all have worth to me at some level. but, But you'll notice they all have this kind of order of priority and worth to them too, right? My wife and my kids come first. They're, more worth, they're worth more to me than things like material possessions or, or my job or whatever. And, that's, and we all get that at some level, right? We all get the order of worth that we put and ascribe to things in our life. But the Bible tells us that God is to be of ultimate worth for us. He's to be not just at the top of the list, but he's to shape the entire list itself. He's the beginning of the list. He's the end of the list. And he's through and in every other thing that's on the list. Remember our Colossians series from the spring. Jesus above all. He's not just the first, he's the only. And then that shapes how the list gets made. He's the one priority, not just a list of one thing and many priorities. He is the priority. That's the definition of what a priority is. He's the one thing. And everything else on the list becomes a way to actually worship him. That's what the list becomes. How I treat my wife and kids, how I do my job, how I serve our church, how I steward my material possessions, all these things, and they, they can and should be a way of worshiping God. It's a perspective shift for us. 
You have to look at your life differently and what you do. It, It all becomes something different for you now. So in order to continue pushing us into that perspective shift, here's what you can write down as our main point for today. Everything is worship. Everything. That's our main point. And that's what your life needs to look like now. So it's different than being a religious person, right? It's different than being a Christian and going to church and separating your lives out into these little silos that we normally separate our lives into. It's a perspective shift. It's not just that you go to church to worship God. It's not just that you worship him in the car while you're singing. It's not just that you're worshiping him when you open your Bible and read and pray, although all of those things are worship. Everything is worship. That's the whole thing. Everything. So, so not just the religious things that you do, not just the things you do to commune with God, but everything. I mean, like brushing your teeth can be worship because you're stewarding your body well. Doing your job, even the menial tasks that you do can be worship because you're doing that for the glory of God. Worship is more than what we do on Sundays, which we'll actually talk about next week. We'll talk about why we worship the way we do on Sundays, at least at some level, with singing. It's not that worship and singing, music and all of that is a bad thing. It's not. It's actually an essential way to worship God, and it's really important for us. It's not unimportant, but it's also more than singing. It's not just those kinds of things. It's a posture of the heart. It's not just a posture of our body. Yeah, it's what we do, but it's, it's really everything that we do, starting with what we love, as we'll talk about today. The scope of worship is everything in our lives. An old-time Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper, who was actually a prime minister of the Netherlands for a few years as well, he said this in, in the opening speech of a, of, of a commencement ceremony that he was at. He said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Man, that's powerful. And that's true. 1 Corinthians 10.31, the Apostle Paul gets at something very similar. He says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of of God. Everything, whether you're eating or drinking or anything, it doesn't matter what you're doing, do it all for the glory of God. It's the idea that God is over all. He's over all things in our lives. And so everything that we do and say and think, it's either worship toward him or it's worship toward something else. But it's one of the two. It's worship. No matter what it is, we'll worship something. The question is what? So we want to lean into deeply depending on God and worshiping him alone, deep dependent worship. That's why we chose the actual words, deep dependent worship. What's deep mean? Well, it means the depths of our souls, our whole lives, our whole selves. It's not shallow. It's not just lip service. It cuts to the very core of who we are. It's deep, right? But then what's dependent mean? Well, it means that we can do nothing apart from him. We're completely helpless unless he helps us. We're completely alone unless he is with us. We're completely subordinate because he is completely sufficient for us. We depend on him. That's dependence. And what's worship mean? Well, let's talk about that today. That's, that's the topic, okay? That's what we're going to see from Romans 12, 1 and 2. So let's break this down in this verse and discuss it together. Let me read Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is good and pleasing and perfect will of God. So I actually preached on these verses a few years ago in a series called Thought Life, and we focused on verse 2, what it means to renew your mind. 
Okay, so I'd encourage you to go and find that on our sermons page of our website. Go listen uh, for a further explanation of what it means to have a renewed mind. But today I really want to focus on verse 1 here and what it means to be a living sacrifice, which Paul says is our true worship or our reasonable worship, some translations will say. It starts with this response that we have to the mercies of God in our life. You know, Paul says, therefore, which means you should always ask what it's therefore, right? Har har. That's the, the preacher joke every time. But you got to ask, why does he say that? Well, he's saying in light of all of God's mercies that he's just described in chapters 1 through 11, in, all, in light of all of those things that God has done for us to love us, our only appropriate response is now gratitude and love to him. That's the, that's the appropriate response now. So you can write this down. What we love leads to what we live. What we love leads to what we live. You know, I, I, I loved riding dirt bikes when I was growing up. And so I, I, I did that all the time. I went over to uh, what we called the country. That's, that's you know, I've uh, got some country folk in my family. And so we'd go over to the country and we'd ride dirt bikes. And I loved riding dirt bikes. But then I met my future wife and then we got married and she became my actual wife. And we moved down to North Carolina to go to seminary together and essentially started a new life, right? That's what you tend to do when you get married. And so I had new loves that took precedent over the loves that I had before. And so I kind of realized over a few months to a year that, man, I just wasn't going to ride dirt bikes like I used to. And so I sold that thing. And, and I've never looked back in some sense. I mean, I would love to ride dirt bikes again. But, you know, one love took the place of another. It took precedent over. It took priority over the love that I had before. And that's how worship always works for us. We have to start to see what takes precedent, what that love is that we love the most. And it starts internally. And it works its way out externally in the things that we do. I sold the dirt bike because I loved my new life with my wife more. Does that make sense? I had one love, but then a greater love took precedent over that. And that led to how I lived my life and what I did with the things that I had. It starts finding that way out in our lives. The love works itself out. And that thing that we love above all else, it leads to what we live out in our lives. Mercy Hill Church worship leader John Azzarello, Mercy Hill's our sending church, John actually wrote a book about worship called You Are What You Worship. I'd highly recommend it to all of you. It's really good. And he wrote in it, Though worship manifests itself through our image and actions, it begins in the heart. The heart is the retina that captures the image of our worship. When our hearts see something that's worthy of our lives, we respond by giving our lives over to it. And see what Paul says here that this is your true worship, or like I said, in some translations, it might even say reasonable worship, or in some, it might even say spiritual worship. What, that word for true or reasonable is the same Greek word from which we get our word logic. So what Paul is saying, it logically follows that if you believe in the mercies of God and you see his love for you, and that captures your heart, and now you love God in response, then it will change the way that you live, logically. Because we're willing to give ourselves over to the things that capture our hearts. We're willing to give ourselves over to the things that we love the most. Namely, we'll live as a sacrifice, he says. So that in our life, everything that we do, everything is worship. So what does it mean to live as a sacrifice? That's the first kind of question that we need to wrestle with here. Well, we get the idea of sacrifice from the Old Testament sacrificial system. You know, some, some people call this the ceremonial laws of Moses. And they detail out how Israel could maintain a relationship with God through acts of worshipful sacrifice 
And God told Israel that in order for them to be forgiven for their sins against him, blood would have to be shed. Innocent blood would have to be shed on their behalf. Now, I don't have time to go too deep into why that's the case, but if I could boil it all down to one sentence, basically, it means that our sin is serious. That's why the sacrificial system, that's why taking of innocent blood, rebelling against God, deserves death. See, life is in the blood, the Old Testament will say, and so sinning is a forfeiture of life. So to put it in our terminology for today, you can write this down. Worshiping created things rather than the creator of all things will end in death. It'll end in death every single time. That there's, there's ramifications for rejecting the God of life, and it leads to death. And that's what the sacrificial system is trying to show us. So we either have to pay for our own sins with our own life, or there can be a substitute that's made for us, which is the beautiful thing about God and what he's done in the world. And that substitute for ancient Israel started with offering these innocent animal sacrifices. Now, it didn't end there because it ended with Jesus, as we'll talk about in a minute, but it started there because it pointed to God's plan for dealing with our sin in a way that we wouldn't have to pay for it on our own. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's the beauty of the good news. So there were multiple kinds of sacrifices that they could make according to the Levitical law. There were to be offerings of atonement for sin, and that's the one that we always usually think of. It's the taking the place of the sinner on the altar of death. You take the innocent animal and you shed its blood in place of the shedding of the blood of the sinner who committed the sin against God. And you would put it on an altar to do this. It's a big like table, but a lot bigger than this. It's a much, much larger table as an altar. And that thing would be covered with blood because they would offer sacrifices all day long in these festivals that they would do. It could probably kind of be pretty gross at times. But then there were all these other offerings that you could offer. Grain offerings, free will offerings, thanksgiving offerings. There were guilt offerings and sin offerings. But then there were peace offerings. All of these different things that you could offer to God, not just in atonement for sin, but also to be thankful, to show your gratitude, to show your love for God. And all of them had slightly different elements and slightly different reasons for offering them. You might offer a bull or a goat or a lamb, or a pigeon if you were poor and didn't have enough money for a bull or a goat, you didn't own those things, or even flour and oil and grain, depending on your circumstances. So it was all very complex. You know, we could do a whole study on that, I'm sure. But this system that Israel was to practice was to continue their relationship with God so that it would point to the one day, that the way that God would ultimately deal with their sin. Of course, they had moral laws. You know, we talk about the Ten Commandments before here and some of those moral laws and how they play out in Israel society, the civil laws and how they could govern themselves or how they could relate to one another. But these ceremonial laws about sacrifices were important to show them the necessity of atonement for their sin through the shedding of innocent blood because they needed to understand how God was going to ultimately deal with that in the future. And of course, we know from the Old Testament authors, the way that that happened was through Jesus. It wasn't that the system itself that they practiced enabled this right relationship with God. I think people get that wrong most of the time. They'll read the Old Testament and think, well, that's how God dealt with them then and dealt with their sin, and now he deals with them differently. That's not it. He was pointing to the way he would ultimately deal with their sin, and that was through Jesus, the ultimate and complete sacrifice who would make us right with God. This is what the author of Hebrews says. That's why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings. Wait, wasn't there an entire, you know, book on this? Le Leviticus teaches us all of these, like we're to have sin offerings. No, no, no. 
God didn't want animal sacrifices and sin offerings. That's not what he was after. You, this is Jesus. But you've given my, me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. And then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written about me in the scriptures. That's Jesus talking about being the sacrifice. So you can write this down. Jesus is our complete and perfectly innocent sacrifice. He is the one that fulfills all of those laws. He's the one that the law was pointing to. Jesus was the perfect, spotless sacrificial lamb that we needed once and for all. He's what the Old Testament law was pointing to. He was just a dim pre- they, they were just a dim preview, the author of Hebrews would say. The system of the law was but a shadow of what was to come, and Jesus is that substance. He's the real thing. It's through his body being sacrificed that we have forgiveness of sins. Man, think Romans 4.25. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Or think Romans 8, 1 through 4. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus, and because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. It wasn't that God dealt differently with the people of Israel than he does with us. It was pointing to something greater. The law of Moses was unable. It was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He's the sacrifice. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature but instead follow the spirit. What was the just the just uh, requirement of the law, death for sin. And Jesus took that death onto himself. These are the mercies of God that Paul's talking about here in Romans 12. Though we deserve death for rejecting God, Jesus became that sin and that sacrifice for us. He took the place on the altar for us. His sacrifice makes us right with God and frees us from the power of sin that leads to death, Paul says here. The law could not do that. Rules, you following rules cannot do that. You doing the right things, you know, you saying the right things, maybe even believing some of the right things, none of that can save you. Only what Jesus did can save you. Only a relationship with him can save you. The law couldn't do that. No system of sacrifice could ever do that. So now when God looks at those who put their faith in Jesus, the one that God sent into the world, he sees Jesus' perfect life in your place. He was innocent before God, and so God now sees you as innocent if you're in him, living the perfect life that we should have lived but won't. Jesus did that for us. But then God sees Jesus' bloody sacrifice and death in our place. He took death onto himself for the punishment of our sins so that we wouldn't have to. And then, of course, God also sees Jesus' resurrection applied to us because he rose from the dead and defeated death so that one day as we follow him in this life, we can be raised from the dead and follow him into the next life for all eternity. That's the good news. That's the gospel that we believe as Christians. That's the mercies of God Paul is talking about here that we have to consider and dwell on and respond to. If you believe God is that good and has done that much to rescue you from eternal death, then how could you not respond by giving him all of your life, all of your body as a living sacrifice in response out of love and gratitude for what he's done? And he gave his body for us on the cross. And now we give our bodies to him in response. You can write that down as a point. 
Jesus gave his body for us so that we can now give our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. That's what it means to live as a sacrifice, and that's what it means to truly worship him. Or That's our reasonable response. That's what a sacrifice is. But what does it mean to be a living sacrifice specifically? Because it's kind of an oxymoron, right? Are we going to lay down on the altar like Isaac did with Abraham? Are we supposed to die physically? Is that what he's talking about? Are we supposed to give our life over to God in a physical way? Well, I mean, maybe, but really it's not physical. It's spiritual. That's what he's talking about here. If Jesus is the spotless lamb, he's not a literal lamb, right? This is metaphorical. It's spiritual for us. So we, to be a living sacrifice, metaphorically need to lay our lives down and give them all over to God. Everything is worship to God. So living as a sacrifice means dying to your old self, dying to your sin, dying to the ways that you want to rebel against God and following Jesus in this new life that he offers. In Matthew 16, he says it perfectly. Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And that's what it looks like to live as a sacrifice. You lay down your life. What is that? Your hopes, your dreams, your plans, your future, your family, your stuff, your mind, your heart, your emotions, your words, every, your body, everything. You give over to God. You lay it all down. You turn it all over to him for his mission, for his kingdom. Everything is worship. Everything. Are you prepared for that kind of worship. It's completely volitional on our part. That's the thing about this. It's, volit- it's, it's up to us. It's our choice that he gives us. God doesn't force us to sacrifice. He's not going to make you sacrifice. We talk about this all that We've talked about this all year long. Where we just want God to change us so much that we just want him to do it for us. God, just help me to stop this sin. Please, why don't you make me stop sinning in this way? We've got to be able to offer ourselves on the altar of self-sacrifice. It's a choice that you make. God's not going to force you to sacrifice yourself. That's not how he operates. We have to choose out of a response to his mercies. We see him. We gaze upon his glory and his beauty and the mercies that he offers us. We behold that goodness and that grace, and then we respond out of gratitude and thanksgiving and love and joy. I like how John Azzarello, again in his book, says, Whatever you behold, you become. So you can write that down. Behold Jesus, and you'll become like him. Man, if you're struggling with sin in your life as a Christian, you're like, man, why can't I stop this? God, please stop it for me. He's not going to. You have to look at Jesus and what he's done for you over and over and over again, and that will change your life over time. It just will. What you look at, what you gaze at, what you give your life over to will change how you live. Listen, here's another way to think about it. When you wholly give yourself over to something, it wholly changes the way that you live. It's like that for bad things. We see this in life all the time with unhealthy things or destructive things. If you give yourself over to an addiction, for example, and that's the thing that you're constantly beholding, you're giving your life over to that, that's the thing that you see and think of and dwell on all the time, it means it has your attention. And that's going to change how you live your life. If it's a substance for you, then it's going to eventually affect everything. It's going to affect your job, your ability to do your job. It's going to affect your relationships. It's going to specifically maybe even affect your body, of course, and the holistic health that you might want. If it's something 
less of a substance, more like pornography. It certainly can affect everything in your life, but specifically your relationships, right? Because if you're looking at someone with lust all the time and you're constantly beholding that and you're dwelling on that and it's affecting you in that way, and then every time you look at somebody else that you're attracted to, you're going to always think of them sexually because you're giving yourself over to that in your life at all times. But it's also like this with good things too, right? If we constantly look at the right things, if we constantly look at what's good and holy and pleasing to God, then it will affect the way that we live. When you give yourself over to behold uh, and place your attention to maybe like a healthy lifestyle, for example, man, that's going to change everything about how you live. It's going to change how you eat. It's going to change when you go to bed. It's going to change what activities you're willing to do or not do. Right? It changes everything about how you live. Or if you give yourself over and behold a spouse in your life and marriage, then that changes how you make decisions and where you go and what you do with your life and what you don't do with your life, right? So whatever you give your attention to, whatever you give your life to will change how you live. And so it's no different with Jesus. If you look at Jesus and you behold Jesus and you give all your attention to him in worship, then you'll become like him. Then you'll live as a Christian. It's really that simple. It's really not a complicated thing. Because the problem, though, and this is, this is where the rubber meets the road, the problem is we don't always look to him, do we? Sometimes we don't want to look to him. Sometimes we actively try not to look at him. Our attention gets divided, in other words. And at times we certainly don't want to give our lives as a sacrifice. <laughs> certainly don't want to put our lives on the altar and die to ourselves and our ways and our hopes and our dreams and whatever that is. You know, our worship leader, Adam, said in sermon prep this week, I thought it was so smart, we're all prone to crawl off the altar of self-sacrifice. You can write that down and meditate on that this week. That's the truth, right? We don't want to sacrifice ourselves to, for God. And we often fight against God and try to stay alive in our own sinful nature, don't we? And if you need help seeing those moments in your life and you're confused, you're like, well, I don't do that. <laughs> just, just look at some of the fruit in your life. You can simply take an inventory of how you live to see over time, is there change have you been beholding Jesus or something else? Because, I mean, man, what you do shows what you love. We talked about this during our He Gave series, right? Time, talent, and treasure. What you give or don't give reveals what you worship. But so does how you act around those you disagree with. So does how you treat your family or how you do your job or the attitude that you have when you wake up every day. Or so does your relationship with food, or maybe your relationship with the mirror and seeing yourself, or your relationship with your material possessions or your bank account. I mean, all of these things are fruit in your life that show you what's the root of your worship. Does that make sense? And if you love something else, and that's not at the root for you, then it will show up in your fruit. If you don't love God at the root, it'll show up in what you do. And it can be tricky for us religious types, can't it? I mean, if you're here, it's because you're probably at some level wanting to commit your life to God, maybe, or, or at least exploring that. I don't want to assume everybody here believes in Jesus, but at some level, you're willing to enter into this and look into this, and usually when we're one of those people, we will fall off on one of two dangerous sides. On the one side, we say that we want to worship God in our experience, and we'll come and we'll raise our hands, and we'll have emotions, our emotions get touched. We might even cry because we think about how big and loving and great God really is to us, but we certainly don't want him to change us. Huh. You know, We certainly don't come to church to be transformed. We certainly don't go to his word 
to be changed and to become more like Jesus. After all, we live in the most individualistic society in the history of humanity. I mean, you do you is our culture's motto, is it not? I mean, you don't have to do what God wants you to do, they'll say. You do what you want to do. That's how you live your life. That's true freedom. That's true joy and true happiness. So worship gets boiled down to emotionalism for some people because you just come to church to feel good, right? It becomes about you, not about God. Emotionalism, that's not true worship. But then on the other side, if we fall off on the other side, we can fall off into legalism or religiosity. And we talk about that a lot here. You might think following Jesus is all about that change that he wants to make in your life, which means you think you got to be perfect in how you act now, right? you got to make sure that you worship him the right way. you got to do the right things, say the right things, maybe even think and believe the right things. There's a formula that you have to follow in order to please God because, yeah, Jesus came into the world and he saved you and all that kind of stuff. There was grace there then, but now you got to keep yourself in the relationship with God. you got to keep doing good things in order to please God or else he's going to look down on you and he's going to kick you out. you got to keep yourself in relationship with him as you live as a sacrifice. That's what you think living as a sacrifice means. But listen, it's not, either, it's not emotionalism and it's not all about us, but it's also not just about following the rules. It's not about doing the right things. We have to find the narrow way in the middle that Jesus talks about. We can't fall off either side. If we truly want to worship Jesus, he will call us to change. There's no doubt about that. It's not just about our emotions, although it is, and we'll talk about that next week. That's very important. But it's everything in our lives. We have to, we have to be willing to surrender our entire self. The spirit of this culture can't lead us. God's spirit has to lead us, and his spirit has to be changing us and calling us to lay down our lives and die. It's, it's, his spirit might be doing that in you this morning. I don't know where you're at right now. Maybe he's doing that in you now. And he's calling you to respond by fully and wholly and completely surrendering everything to him on the altar of your life. Guys, listen, we can't just offer part of ourselves to God. That's the whole point here. That's not true and reasonable worship. God demands everything, and he deserves everything. We have to be willing to lay it all down. But we also can't expect to change on our own strength, right? We can't expect to do all the right things because we're doing it. This process of dying to ourselves is this ongoing thing so that Jesus can start to take over our lives and live through us more and more. To use a churchy word, sanctification requires this kind of surrender so that Jesus can live through us. Paul wrote this in Galatians 2, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's giving God your body as a sacrifice. That's living as a sacrifice. That's true worship. We see what he's done and we respond by giving him our lives to live through us. Vance Pittman wrote a book called Unburdened and he said, stop living for Jesus so Jesus can live through you. You can write that down and remember that for us as a takeaway here because that's very important for us as Christians. It's the only reasonable response to his love and it's a product of deep dependent worship in our lives. Just think of it this way. For Jesus to respond to the Father's will and follow him, he had to surrender his life. He had to die. He bids us come and do the same when we follow him. We're to respond with complete and total surrender. That's true worship. Nothing else will do. The old Puritans used to call it mortifying sin in our lives. I love that. We're to mortify sin. That means we're to put it to death. We're to kill it. 
but it's an ongoing process. Every single day we're putting our sin, we're putting our lives, we're putting our loves, our hopes, our dreams, we're putting all of that on the altar of sacrifice to God. We're telling him, these are yours now. They're not ours anymore. So one thing I wanna ask you before we close out our time together is, what won't you surrender to him today? You can write it down like this. What won't you put on the altar to sacrifice? What won't you put there? Is there something worth more to you than a life of worshiping Jesus? Is there something worth more than what he's done? And if God sacrificed what was most valuable to him, the only appropriate response for us is to sacrifice what little thing we have, just our life, for him in return, right? We have to sacrifice for what we believe is most valuable to us. That's what we'll all do. That's what worship is. We'll sacrifice for something. Is it gonna be for him? Do you see Jesus as worth it to you? If you do, then give everything else as a sacrifice to get him. That's the whole point here, right? It's not just that we can be right or do the right things or find joy in being better than other people or something silly like that. We're not better than anybody else. We just need Jesus. He's the prize. He's the end of our worship. He's what we want. He's everything to us. He tells some parables about this in Matthew 13. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. And in his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy that field. Why? Because there was a treasure of even greater price than everything that he owned. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything that he owned and he bought that pearl because he knew it was of greater value, of infinite worth. Well, way above the value of anything else that he possessed at that time. Do you see Jesus as that way for you? Would you sell it all for him? See, we focused on Jesus as our sacrifice a minute ago, and he is. But Jesus is actually everything for us in our worship. He's the place of our worship, he's the object of our worship, and he's the initiator of our worship. And I'll end with this. I want you to think of this. We think about the temple in the Old Testament as the place where God dwelled among his people, right? He was on the, the, the Ark of the Covenant and his, his presence dwelled there in a real way. His clouds and thunder and fire would cover the tabernacle and be in the camp among the, I mean, they saw the pillar of fire. They saw the pillar of cloud. And it's crazy to think of God's real and actual presence there. And yet, Jesus came to be the true temple instead. He's the perfect human body where God fully dwelt with his people in this world. The place that we actually go to be made right with God. We don't go to a temple with an altar and blood and sacrifice anymore. He did that. He is the temple. He's the place where we meet with God. But he's also the object of our worship because that's what it means to be the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. As we've talked about today, he's the true and spotless lamb that shed his blood for us. We need him. He's the object of our worship, but he's also the great high priest who mediates between us and God. He's the initiator of our worship with God. There's nothing you and I can do to come to God. He had to do it for us. He goes to God on our behalf so that we can be made right with God through no fault of our own. And church, the amazing thing is, the Bible tells us that we're now those things too. That's the crazy part of it. When we know Jesus and we worship him with everything, and we're in him, the Bible tells us, then we become those things too, in Christ. 
when we believe in him, we're the temple of God's presence now, where God dwells on earth. We're the living sacrifice, as we've read today, because Jesus lives through us now. And we're a kingdom of priests, the Bible will say, mediating between the lost world and our Savior as his hands and feet and mouthpiece for him, sharing the good news about what he's done for all of humanity. And when we worship him, we become his presence on earth so that others might know and worship the same God that we know and worship. I mean, everything is worship, guys. Let me just say it definitively for you as we close out our time. He is worth your sacrifice. He is. And if you have doubts today, I would love to talk to you after this service. If you're like, man, I just can't get past these couple of things or whatever. I would love to, our pastors here would love to speak with you. We have a prayer team that'll be down front that would love to speak to you about that and help you find answers if they don't know the answers. I don't know all the answers either, but we can talk about it and we can work through it because listen, he is worth your sacrifice. He's worth your life. So is the joy that comes in knowing him. Therefore, everything is worship. And in the coming weeks, we're going to discuss some of those expressions of that worship and what it looks like to worship our heavenly king who deserves it from us. Let's pray. God, I just ask that you would help us today to really understand what worship truly is. It's everything. It's giving everything for you. It's giving up our very lives because Jesus gave up his life for us. God, I pray that we will dwell deeply on the gospel today. And for those who don't know Jesus here today, God, I pray that they would wrestle through these things. I mean, God, you you give us volition. You give us choice. And I'm so thankful for that. God, I pray that you'll call people to yourself today. Call those who've been on the margins and just been thinking about this in a religious way. Call them to a relationship with you today, God. I pray that you'll save thousands of people in the coming years here because of these people in this room. You're using them as your presence, as your temple, as your living sacrifice, as the initiator of a relationship with somebody else in their life. God, I pray that you'll do that. I've seen it happen already. We, we have multiple stories from this year where you've done that. God, please do more. We're just begging you. We're asking you. Help us to bow our hearts to you today in worship, true worship, reasonable worship, giving ourselves our very lives to you. Please live through us, God. We want to see you do great things, especially this Christmas. And God, I want to pray that you will save at least five people this Christmas. I know people get weird about putting numbers on stuff, goals. I just want to ask you to do something. God, if you don't save five, it's fine, but I'm just going to pray for something. Please save five people, God. We just believe that you deserve so much more than that. So why not? Why not five? God, please do even more than we could ever ask or imagine this Christmas. Please call us to invite people. Please give us that desire to invite people into that with us. to to worship you alone deeply, to be dependent on you, to worship you alone. God, I pray that for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening with us today. We hope that it was an encouragement to you. But you know, we don't see this as a replacement for gathering with other believers in a local church context. So if you don't have a local church, we would encourage you to plug in with one wherever you are. And if you're in Roanoke, Virginia, we'd love to invite you to plug in with us here at Redemption Church. And you're welcome anytime to gather with us. But you can check us out online at our our website, redemptionroanoke.com. You can look for other content or resources there. But thanks again for listening.